Hi, it's Chris Watkin, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Handford, who is big in the game with the Fine and Country Network, runs his own estate agency, and is a non-executive director for Fine and Country. Really good at his job, bringing in absolutely fantastic fees. I want to talk to you about your estate agency journey, Jonathan. There's an awful lot of people out there that know you, but some that don't. Your fears, your frustrations, your hopes and dreams, so people can learn from your roller coaster of a career. Is that okay? Perfect. Jonathan, um, we need, we've known each other for quite a few years. Um, I, I really do look up to you as an agent and, and as a friend. Um, but what I want to do is go back to secondary school. Did you always want to be an estate agent? Talk to me. Okay. Never really on the agenda to become an estate agent. It okay. wasn't anything that I'd ever thought of as a possible career journey. Okay. My father was a carpenter, um, and I think that was the route that I was expecting to go, um, specifically within the field of exhibition design and manufacture. Um, I did two years at college um, learning furniture design and manufacture, which was uh, about as close as you could get to the exhibition industry. And I was working from a very early age, from sort of 15 onwards, and I'd go and do the shows at the NEC, Earl's Court, even things like the air show in Paris. Um, and I just, that's where I expected to be. And then as I spent more and more time doing that, clashed a little bit with my dad, strong personalities. And I kind of felt like I needed to go out into the world on my own and carve my own path. And I had a very fortuitous meeting in a pub in Leamington Spa. Is that um, where you're from? Yes. Yeah, born and bred in Leamington Spa. Very proud of the town. Lovely place to be. Um, and I had a very fortuitous meeting with a, with a chap. And within minutes of meeting him, being introduced to a friend, he said, um, my God, you're an estate agent. You should come and talk to us. And within a... Within a few days, I'd, uh, I'd lined up a new role and I uh, started on the, the first day of the millennium. What, <clears throat> um, what did your parents teach you, mother and father? So it's interesting, as a carpenter, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> so planning's it, really important. Is that where you're, I mean, if you don't mind me saying, you're a very detail-orientated person, very detailed. Um, I also, through my years, that you're a bit of a perfectionist as well. You know, these are these are traits which are not normal estate agency traits. Yeah, I I think it's only become more apparent to me in recent time that I'm maybe more detailed than the average person, and I never really recognised that. I just assumed that everybody had that in them, and I. Um, I do spend quite a bit of time planning and thinking things through, and maybe to a degree it's a downfall for overanalyzing, but I like to have a plan and I like to have a strategy. I drive my wife up the wall because I'll be constantly pestering her, what, what is the plan, what are we doing, when are we doing it, what are the timings? And I take great comfort in knowing what to expect. Um, so, I, again, I, th I think I'll probably get that from my dad. Um, I suppose if you're dealing with expensive bits of wood, as you say, you can measure twice, but you can't cut twice, can you? True. You know, and uh, I, I think that's uh, put me in good standing for my future career as an estate agent. There are a lot of principles yeah. that I carried over. And the other thing, I think this is possibly one of the most important things that I carried over was work ethic. 
You know, I remember my first day as an estate agent, I was told to come to the office at 11 o'clock. And from there, my training would start and I'd get set up. And I was at the office that day for eight o'clock and I was in the car park waiting for everybody else to arrive. And I can remember the manager pulling in, looking at me, eye rolling as if to say, what on earth are you doing here? I told you to be in at 11 o'clock and I held my hands up straight away and said, look, I'm really sorry, I know you said 11, but I thought at least I can just get the kettle on or sweep up and make some tea and just try and help out and roll my sleeves up and get stuck in. And I think work ethic and effort is underrated and it's a cornerstone of any successful estate agency business because stuff isn't going to fall into your lap. You've got to go out and fight for it and, and work hard for it. What did your mother teach you? Uh, be kind, um, fight for your corner, I think would be, would be two, two things. You know, I think in terms of values, they're both important. Normally detail-orientated people, which tends to be more the letting side, because most people fall into either they're either process-driven or people-driven. Um, and everyone says, oh, well, I'm a people person. But normally, if you're going to use, if you need to get out of a, solve a problem, you either use process or you use your people skills. You, you, where have you got the fact is that you're both a process person, yet at the same time, you also have those people skills as well? So this is interesting. I do a lot of training for Finding Country uh, in helping agents. We have a boot camp training program. One of the things that we touch upon is the personality matrix where somebody's either an introvert, they're an extrovert, they're obviously lo logic or emotion, and you've got those, those four oh. quadrants. And I think I'm... I sort of sit in the middle. I think maybe a, a raging red to a degree, which is a line on the colour scheme, which is an extrovert and, and detail. I'll maybe gravitate more to that, but I have the ability to emulate whoever I'm with. And I think I do, I'm maybe a psychopath, I don't know, but maybe I sit in the middle and I can emulate who I'm with. And, you know, I always say in the Finding Country training sessions, it's really important that you're able to win people's hearts and minds. And you do that with both logic and emotion. It's no good getting on with somebody on an appointment if you can't then reinforce that with data and statistics to justify mm. what you are, what your suggestion is in your campaign. And I guess that, that rings true in every warp of this business. So I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite fortunate. I'm capable of... Um, of developing relationships. I think it's probably from spending 20 plus years on the road as an estate agent conducting market appraisals and seeing other people and emulating the techniques and the things that I've seen. But I, I, I do like a spreadsheet. I like my numbers. I like my statistics. Because these are, you put, a, you put a spreadsheet in front of a normal valuer and they switch off, don't they? Some of them do. Yeah, some of them do. I mean, as a rule of thumb, salespeople are bad administrators. Yes. Uh, and they're not very good at organisation. I, I have to be organised. My wife would say in work, maybe not so much outside of work, because, I, again, I leave those things to her, and thankfully she, she she's at the, the steering wheel there. But in work, I, I need to have everything organised. I need to have it structured. And I feel uncomfortable and, and twitchy. My toes will start to curl up at the end of my shoes, not knowing that I've got, I've got that structure in order. And I think... Um, you know, Do you have the fear of an unknown, of the unknown? I was just about to say, knowledge breeds confidence. So having the knowledge and having organisation, you then feel comfortable and confident. And I think if you haven't got those, then you are going to be a bit fearful um, and you're going to feel a bit uncomfortable and out, out of place. And I think if you've got that confidence going into things, I, I like going to an appointment with a structured detail 
of comparables, irrefutable evidence of what something is. And then when you get to the pricing strategy, you can hammer it out with the vendor where you're not presenting your opinion, you're presenting the hard irrefutable facts of the marketplace. So I think that that, that, that does. And if you've ever, I mean, cri crikey, you've been a coalface estate agent yourself, there's nothing worse than going to a market appraisal unprepared without all of the facts, all of the information. It's an awful feeling. Well, I don't know why anyone would put themselves in that position. I used to drive, before the internet and Google Street View, we used to drive out to the house just to have a quick look, just in case you didn't recognise it. Happy days, those are, the, those are the days. So you joined a corporate estate agent, Connells in Kenilworth. Yes. And you, you, you joined as a bottom of the run neg, like all of us. Yep. Uh, in the first year, first year, month of the millennium. Yes. When did you become a valuer? Uh, so quite quickly. We, the, the, from the, the day of opening, we had no properties. We had a window display with no properties in. Oh, so you had a you, you, brand new office. Cold start. Brand, brand new office. I mean, if you don't, just before we kick off on that, what did your father think that the fact you left the family business? Um, he was probably relieved. <laughs> I, I disappointed to a degree because I think he'd always envisaged that we would go on and we'd work together and we'd, we'd help build that business. But I, I think... I was probably a bit of a nightmare working for him. I don't think I was that mature back then. I think I was always under his wings and in his shadow. I was a bit stroppy and mopey. And okay. although I had a good work ethic and I worked hard, actually I, I needed to go and cut my teeth in the real world and roll up my sleeves and become a bit of a man. And I don't think I'd have made the same progress that I have today if I hadn't have made that step. So even if he felt a bit disappointed back then, I think now he would probably look back and recognise it as an important step up. You moved reasonably quickly to Newman's, yeah. Sean Newman's, uh, in 01, 02, somewhere around there. Yep. What made you want to swap agents? So at the time at Connell's, I think I had an £8,000 a year salary. Uh, I got 2% commission for a sale, 2% of the overall fee. And if I was the listener, I got another 2%. Um, I'd managed to... 6% luxury. Yeah, yeah, luxury. Luxury. Yeah, luxury. It was barely <laughs> enough to live by, I must admit, especially with uh, going out socialising at the weekend. But the um, I, I just started to break into valuing properties, and that happened more by accident than by choice. I think there was a day where nobody could do an appointment, and I said, well, I'll go out, and I remember it was a two-bedroom maisonette. And I picked it we up always remember our first valuation, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a two-bedroom maisonette and I won the instruction. And then within a week, there was a, another property, I think it was Suncliff Drive. And I'd gone out and I'd picked up a 2% fee. At the time, it was unheard of. Nobody was commanding those sorts of fees. And I just remember thinking, if you ask, then there's every possibility that you will get it. And it did your, did you, Was this at Newman's? No, no, this was at Connell. So it was before okay. I got to Newman's. So did your boss say to you, I want 2% or do you just think off the top of, the top of your head? No, that's what I decided that I wanted for this listing and that I'd command the instruction. And and it was a, a big one, which was one of the more expensive properties that we'd had. It was £400,000, big detached. Well, 400, that was garage. a lot. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but that was a lot of money in 2000, 2001. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and we, we sold it. We, we did a really good job. I put all of my effort into it to make sure it had the best possible campaign. I can remember standing on top of my vehicle to get the highest possible angle to capture the photograph so that you could see above the garage and see how big the garden was. 
and I, there'd have been people driving along the Warwick Road seeing some lunatic stood on top of his car. Well, and this, this was back when there was no digital cameras, so it was a camera that had a role in it, so I didn't know what the pictures looked like until I went and got the film developed uh, the next day. And then I had to go back round and meet with the vendors and get the proof roll out and pick out the ones that we wanted. So I, I, was, I was committed to making sure I was going to do the best job that I possibly could for that seller. Was that because you were motivated by the 6%? Um, well, at the time? Realistically, no, because it's neither here nor there. I really enjoyed my job. You know, I, When I started working as an estate agent, I couldn't believe how fortunate I was to have fallen into a job that I enjoyed so much. I enjoyed the thrill of the chase. I enjoyed the um, I enjoyed winning instructions. I enjoyed getting sales, even on my day off. I'd, I'd, I'd want people to call me on my mobile. I'd feel like I was uh, a little bit lost when I wasn't at the office and dealing with things. So I wanted to do a good job because it was the right thing to do, and I enjoyed it. And I, and I also didn't want to let those people down. They'd pick me of all of the agents that they'd had out, and I knew that I wanted them to look back and be be glad that they made the decision to pick John Hanford, not necessarily Connells. I, 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 I wanted them to look back and think that was the right choice. How did you deal at the time with losing listings? The same way that every other estate agent deals. I, I remember a few years further on in 2004 when we opened back in my hometown, this was with Sean and Newman's, and again, it was a brand new office, empty window display, no, no market share. And, there's myself and another girl called Debbie who were going out doing the market appraisals between us and we'd become practically market leader within seven or eight months. We did, did incredibly well. And there's a place called Northumberland Road, tree-lined streets in North Leamington, very prestigious. Everyone wants a house there. And I've met a couple, got on with them like a house on fire and I thought, that's in the bag. And about six weeks later, I drove down the road and there was a... Um, there was a sale sign with another agent outside the house that I automatically assumed was in the bag and I was going to win. And I remember screaming so loud in my car as I pulled over to the side that a woman, as she was crossing the road with her pram, stopped and turned around and went back in the opposite direction. And to try and calm the scream, I bit my steering wheel because I was so annoyed that I'd lost the listing. I was annoyed not with them, but with myself for just assuming that they were going to come back to me. I've got two fangs here and there was an indent in the top of my steering wheel, which was a reminder for about two years. Every time that I got in my car, you need to prospect because otherwise people are going to go elsewhere. You've got to be on top of it. So not very well. I don't, I don't take rejection. Do you get, well. do you, have you dealt with that rejection better as time has gone on? Yeah, I'm more mature now. That would have been very early okay. 20s. You now bite a stick and not a, an, an, a, a steering wheel. So, look, I think estate agents naturally are very narcissistic where they want everyone to like them. And, you know, we, we talk about pie charts tongue in cheek and you know, we want to do well. We want to be top of the league. Okay. It's the fear of rejection, though, isn't it? it? There is definitely a fear of rejection. There's a, there's a competitive streak in all of us. OK, there's a difference between competitive. We all want to be competitive. But why what is that fear of rejection? Have you got better at it or did you not have it so much? Well, obviously I, I, you had done. I think now it's critically important for you to walk away from a listing and not win every one of them. Okay. I think if you're winning every one of them, you're pandering to everybody and you're probably okay. setting yourself but up. There's a difference a between winning everything and losing. Yeah. How do you deal with losing? 
One that you, you're not telling me that this stuff where it was perfect for you, perfect for the vendor to choose you, and they still chose another agent. Look, in the rare occasions that that's happened, I don't take it very well. I've, you know, I've, I've been okay. completely transparent and showing my soft underbelly. I've, I, I deal with reject, rejection quite poorly. And I think that's, I don't think you can necessarily be a really good agent if you haven't got that in you where you want to please people and you want okay. to do well and you want okay. to succeed. I think if you've got a nonchalant man, no, no, but the, okay, but. There's a difference between dealing with rejection and it isn't black and white in terms of being nonchalant. You know, why should we judge ourselves on the outcomes of other people's choices? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a valid point. Uh, but I think other people's choices are determined by how good a job you've done of presenting okay. your, your pitch. Do, and if you've not done it right, then their choice. Okay, so do you, do you look back almost like, you know, airline pilots when, when there's, a, when there's a, a, a crash or something or what, something goes wrong, the, the word blame, it's right. What exactly did, went wrong here? Do you methodically look back and say, right, this is where I went wrong? 100%. So Matthew Syed's Black Box Thinking is one of my favourite books. And obviously you've got two different professions where you've got the airline industry, where they've got black boxes, where they'll overanalyse, learn from their mistakes and make sure that they won't do it again. And then you've got the medical profession, which will just brush stuff under the carpet, hush, hush, and never learn from their mistakes because they're too proud to accept it. You know, there's something I learned years ago called the pruning shears of revision, where you look back and you go through and you look at what you did and what you could have done differently to affect the outcome. So um, I think it's a really important part of the process that you look back and the go-to response for most people losing a listing is, oh, the other agent did a lower fee and they said it was more money. But again, in reality, you haven't done a good enough job convincing them of the reasons why they should pick you and why you're different. Um, and I think if you're a commodity-based agent, it's difficult for you to have that thinking because you're just a different colour agent in terms of you've got red, green, blue, purple, whatever it may be. But if you are, it, it, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're presenting something very different and unique in the proposition, you should be able to get it. But yeah, I don't do well with rejection. Bless. Um, throughout the early 2000s, 234, you went through NEG, Senior NEG, Valuer, Assistant Manager, Branch Manager, Area Valuer, and then in 2007, you were made Managing Director of Newman's. Yeah. What's Sean like as a, as a, as a originally a boss and then a, a business partner? So I owe a lot of my success to Sean. Um, he's unwavering commitment to improve the industry it's impossible to satisfy him it's, it's impossible to satisfy him because no matter how good a job if you go to him and say i've got 50 percent market share well why haven't you got 55 percent so in some instances you can maybe find that a bit demoralizing but then you look at people like alex ferguson who when the united team were on the team bus on the way back from winning the european cup instead of celebrating is already asking everyone to think about the next season and how they can go back and keep that trophy and win it. And that was almost a mentality that was ingrained within the players. And that's the type of frame of mind that Sean has. So I owe a lot of my success to him because I think his high standards helped me to raise my own bar. I was very grateful of the opportunity to be his managing director at 27, which is quite a young age. That's how old he was at the time. So at that time, so... Were you involved with a little bit of equity as well at that time? Yes. 
yeah, that was part of that move to become a managing director of the of the of the whole group. So, two thousand and seven, you were made MD, and then the poo hit the fan in 08. Yeah. How did that? Where were you when that hit? Um, I I can remember going on holiday to 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 Egypt. We were Sharm El Sheikh, two week holiday. We just bought a new house. I bought a, a brand new Mercedes. I think it was my credit that probably tipped the economy over the edge at the time. And the second half of that holiday, this was pre-Zoom and Teams. I remember being on the phone for pretty much an entire week, setting up redundancy plans to significantly change the shape of the business as a necessity in order for it to survive. Every company had to. If you didn't do that, you, you probably aren't here still now. And it would cross. It was a baptism of fire, you know, and. Uh, and putting a plan together to to make people redundant that you'd worked with for years, friends, you know, really close associates. But it was the lesser of two evils. It was either you have that little bit of pain, or or unfortunately the whole the whole business is affected. Um, I've unfortunately had to make six out of thirteen people redundant out of my office when I was branch manager. Um, it's not pretty, is it? No. How did you cope with it? I think I come to terms with the fact with the fact it was the lesser of two evils. It was, and it sounds quite callous to say, it was an amputation to save the body, you know, and and that okay. I was so keen to save the other okay. people within the business. Can you remember the conversations that you had with the people that you made redundant? One hundred percent. I can remember the, the, the feeling of dread going into the meetings. I remember the tears. I remember the understanding. I remember I remember having to compose myself in between meetings. It was it was so difficult. It was you know, it was it was very challenging. I know people with families themselves. Um, you know, and it's quite it was quite a significantly dark time within the economy and prospects weren't good for people. But, you know, through that comes evolution, through, through, through difficulty and adversity. And, you know, the, the business changed the shape. It grew as a result of it. And, you know, thankfully, it was, it was the greater good in the long run. What lesson would you give to people watching this if they have to do that in the future? Uh, well, look, there are a few things here. My wife originally worked within HR, so you obviously have to make sure you do everything above board. You have to talk to people, follow a proper consultation process and to ensure that you do it properly, because otherwise you can create a bigger headache for yourself. Plus, you need to look for other solutions. Um, you, and then it, again, there's, I think, a degree of honesty. But also, you have to you have to act decisively. Um, I don't think it's anything that you need to that you need to, to drag on. So you got through that. What then happened after that? So we we grew the business. Um, we made some changes. We'd already had a few um, uh, self-employed people within the business at that point. Because that went that went ballistic, didn't it? That you are loads of, you know. An awful lot of people at Newman's became, well, they were, as you say, self-employed, but you really did expand the model. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Was that a way of just keeping costs down? 
Uh, no, it was a way to change the the shape of the business in terms of how we worked, how we operated. And we wanted people that were more committed, um, more focused, more driven, more results driven. And we wanted to attract better people from competitors. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Did you fall into the trap where you got an awful lot of people to join you, but for some reason they still were in the mindset of the previous being an employed estate agent? So I, you, it's really interesting. Do you recruit somebody from another agent and then try and teach them your way or do you take a blank canvas? And there are arguments to both. Obviously the benefit of bringing somebody from a competitor is they might bring a stock of property with them, but they also might bring some baggage and some bad habits. When you've got a blank canvas, they haven't really bring, they're not bringing anything to the table other than enthusiasm and potentially work ethic. But they have no preconceived ideas on what good looks like, on what fees are, what you can command. So as a result, you can shape them into what you, what you see fit. So I think we, we probably shaped more people as blank canvases than we did bringing in, by bringing in competitors. I appreciate you're not one. I'm going to ask you a question, and it's a very black and white question here. And whichever answer you give, you're going to offend the, the others. Okay. Okay. But if you could, from this point on, only, I know it's dependent on the person, but if you could only employ a blank canvas who wasn't an estate agent or an estate agent, which do you think makes the better self employed agent? The better self employed agent? Remove the self-employed thing for a second, because I think it's important to just look and say agents in general. If it was me personally, because of the nature of the properties in the part of the market that I work with within finding country, it would probably be an experienced estate agent because you need somebody that knows what they're talking about, and uh, the vendors that we're dealing with have a certain expectation. So that's but that's removing the self-employed thing. Okay, so that saying. okay, so that's finding country, which you're up a quartile. Let's just say you had a self-employed agency called, I don't know, FPX okay. or, or, or Weller Williams or something. <laughs> okay. <Do> Subtle. You, <laughs> like a brick going through a plate glass, plate glass window. I mean, you know, <clears throat> e EXP are famous for just only taking experienced agents in. Whilst Keller, they'll, they'll take anyone with the right attitude. Yeah. Skills versus attitude. Which one's the most important? Uh, aptitude is always secondary to attitude. You could have an experienced agent with 30 years and then you could have somebody that's done the job for six months. The sixth month agent could actually do a far better job because they're just willing to put more into it. Okay, so let's come back to your jobs. Around in the early teens, 13, 14, I think you left the managing director role and decided to go back more into a state agency. Why? I know, you, I know you must have said in the old house, but what made you actually leave that almost strategy role of being Sean Newman's right-hand man to actually being, right, I want to be my own estate agent? And I know you're directing the firm in the background, but you weren't necessarily the figurehead. So we, we had one of the first finding country licences in the whole of the UK. We had one of the first offices in rugby. Um, so we've practically been with it since its inception. So we're very fond of the brand and what it does. And... 
Before I go back to Leamington Spa in 2007, at one point, you know, you went through the local courier, you had pages and pages and pages of finding, uh, sorry, of, of Newman's properties. Our market share was phenomenal. We were up nearly 50% in the, in, in the heart of the credit crunch. But we never got called out to the big stuff. You know, we, we really struggled to break into that part of the market, yet finding country, it really did sort of resonate with people of that type mm -hmm. and style of house. And I, quite early on, could recognise the, the, the middle market would become maybe a bit more saturated, whereas the nuanced upper quartile and prime market there was maybe more of a, an opportunity and I enjoyed working in that part and I decided to gravitate across and put all of my energy and resources into that. So that's when I, I become exclusive to, to finding country as such. And as part of that, I rolled up my sleeves and got out on the road and started winning introductions and doing sales and listings myself because I had a bit more time and capacity to do so. Instead of running a business with multiple divisions, it was a smaller part of F&C and then managed to grow that from its infancy to the license that it is today. Did you enjoy getting back on the road? Uh, yes and no. Look, agency has its highs and lows, and there's days where you come back and you're on top of the world and you love it, and then there is on days when you come back and you know you it, it's it, it can beat you up. Um, so, but yeah, there, there are occasions when you get victories and you get ch chains and sales across the line. You do things that you know that other people couldn't have done. And, you know, it's the best feeling in the world. So, but it, it does come with highs and lows. A couple of years ago, just before COVID, you were recognised as the leading agent in final country. I can remember getting that award. Well done. Thank you. And I think after that, you were invited to be a non-executive director on the final country board. Yes. What has that done for you and what have you done for the Final Country Network? So the yeah, honoured to, to have the opportunity, <coughs> excuse me, to step onto the board with with Some big names. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in terms of its growth from where it is today versus where it's going to go in the future and, and the prospects that it holds, it, it's incredible. So to to be able to to help with the strategy of the growth of the business. I'm, I'm very honoured that I've got the opportunity to do that. The, I think what I bring to the table is a, a cutting edge insight into what is happening and what's working on the coalface. What we've done in Leamington Spa, I think they, again, they wanted to try and emulate within the rest of the network and help people take those tips and tricks and, and things to make sure that the, the rest of the, the licenses within the network have got access to those tools. Um, so I think what, what I bring, although it's got agency in its DNA and it's very fabric of the, of the business, I bring that, I've got the best of both worlds because I sit on the board and help Fine Country run its business of, of licensing the, the brand and I also can, to, can bring what's happening from the coalface in terms of success mm. of listing and selling houses in, in my licence patch. What's the future for you? I mean, how old are you now? I'm 42 now. I'm 42. So, so. a baby? Yeah, I guess so. How long have you been married? Uh, we've been married now for six years, but we've been together for quite a long time. Um, so sort of childhood sweethearts, but um, we've got a got five year old boy. Um, you know, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing at the minute. I've got I've got four hats that I wear. I sell houses and list houses myself. I've got the four finding country licenses: um, Leamington Spa, Stratford upon Avon, the Cotswolds, and also Joint Spa in Worcestershire, which 
covers a few counties and quite a big patch. I've got the NED role, which was with head office, and then also do a lot of training and development um, with, a, with a boot camp programme. So I'm kept kind of busy across those things. I think some of, a, a little bit of that's going to have to give, I think, in order to, to maintain the commitment to the three. Um, but, you know, foreign country's got big ambitious plans in terms of its growth internationally. So whether that will... Well, well you've got Simon there better at the front, which I've uh, got a huge amount of time for. He passes on his regards. I spoke to him uh, today on route here. Bless him. Bless him. Yeah, nice guy. And some good senior lieutenants with Nikki and Daniel. and Oh, and of course you've got Gavin, who's just joined you as well. That's top great. person. Um, and Emily in the background doing the marketing, which she's fantastic. So a good team. And of course you're part of Nurture, which obviously John Cook's in charge of. So, yeah, you've got the, the money in the background to, to drive you forward. So I wish you well on that one. Absolutely. I mean, people think of Finding Country as a great brand, but first and foremost, I think of it as a great team of people um, that are very committed, very innovative, you know, and they we wouldn't have had the success that we'd have had if you hadn't had people steering the ship and as passionate about it as, uh, you know, as they are. I mean, certainly, I mean, I've, I kindly get invited to the conference each year and uh, I'm really impressed with the people behind the scenes driving it forward. It's a great brand. I like the way they're moving forward with the associate model to allow people to come in so they don't have to take a license. Um, I think it's only going to go from strength to strength and give the likes of your Savills and United Franks a run for your money. Absolutely. Thank you for your time today. That's quite all right.